Father, we thank you that we, um, we are the people of God by your grace. That you are building us into a temple of living stones. We are the vine, or you are the vine, and we are the branches. Uh, Lord, all of these pictures that you give to us in Scripture of who we now are because of our vital union with you. Thank you that we are adopted as sons and daughters, that we're your children, that we're your bride. Uh, Thank you for these images that remind us of just how precious we are to you. Uh, Lord, we come this morning to lift our hearts and our minds and our affections to you. Uh, The world continues to try to press us into its mold. and, And Lord, by coming together in worship, we fight back and say, no, my heart belongs to the Lord. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would confront us at the level of our heart by the truthfulness of your word. Holy Spirit, minister, us, minister to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Young Billy wanted to help his mother uh, make dinner. So he joined her in the kitchen and watched carefully as she preheated the oven and as she proceeded to take a dinner ham out of the refrigerator. She pulled out a pan and she removed the ham from its packaging and she cut off the ends and she very carefully centered it in the pan and placed it in the oven. And Billy is a curious little fella and uh, had a question. So he asked mom, why did you cut the ends off of the ham before you put it in the oven? And she thought for a moment and said, you know, actually, I'm not sure. I guess that's because my mother always cut the ends off from the ham. I'll have to ask her one day. So a few days later, mom was on the phone with her mom, and she asked the question. She said, hey, Billy was helping me with dinner the other day, and he asked why I cut the ends off of the ham. And I had to tell him, I don't know, because my mom did the same thing. Why do we cut the ends off of the ham? And her mom said, I don't know, for me, it was just because I never had a dish big enough for the whole ham. (laughs) Uh, The point of that is, the little parable, if you will, is that more is caught than taught. And oftentimes it's habits and practices and rituals that are passed along without understanding uh, the meaning or the significance of them. And while that's sort of laughable in this kitchen story here, It's tragic when it takes place in the faith. When our worship and our discipleship become empty rituals, void of meaning. And that's what we find in our passage today. Um, Sometimes the forms of our faith can eclipse the substance of our faith. And they can create a practice that we might call religious formalism. Uh, Sometimes that's been referred to as legalism, and I actually want to say something distinct from that, because I think in legalism, the person believes that by performing these tasks, they would actually be saved. Religious formalism, I think, is different. It's more of a distraction. It's a focus on the outward things rather than the essence of it. It's, It's focusing on the means, but not the end to which it was trying to take us. I think we're actually more susceptible to religious formalism than we might be to legalism. Because almost nobody claims, by doing these things, I believe that I'm saved. But that's the point. If we're not careful, we can fall prey to religious formalism. 
We can allow the forms of faith to eclipse the object of our faith. And with the best of intentions, we can end up worshiping a way of life rather than the author of life. And so that's the very thing that Jesus is confronting in our passage. What I want you to hear this morning, what I would pray that you would come away with is this. Don't get stuck in the forms of your faith. Stay focused on the object of your faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Delight in him. Stay fixed upon him. Grow your affections for him. Uh, So let's look at our passage here. Chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So our broad principle this morning is this. Religious forms, they are a system of faith practice. But Jesus is the substance of our faith. One of the most condemning things that we could say about the Pharisees is that with all of their piety and all of their religious practice, they missed out on the Son of God when he was in their presence. They missed him. They were the teachers of the law. They were to teach it by instruction and to model it as a way of life. They were to prepare people for the coming of Messiah. But when Messiah did come, not only did they not recognize him, they wanted to kill Jesus as an imposter. And one of the reasons why was because he continued to upset the apple cart on their uh, formalism, their religious formalism. He consistently confronted it. On one hand, it's really easy to be critical of the Pharisees, right? We can look at passages and go, wow, those knuckleheads, they just couldn't get it. What's wrong with them? They're not like us. Well, we're like them. Their temptations are our temptations. With the best of intentions, trying to worship God, trying to grow in our discipleship, trying to make disciples of others, we can get caught up in just turning the crank of religious programming, creating enclaves of Christian culture, or just going through church motions. Really, really easy to do. And in just sort of being busy in church stuff or the Christian culture, we can end up missing out on truly loving Christ as our Savior or truly loving our neighbor as ourself. We can miss out on this dynamic union with Christ because we're just doing one more Christian thing. Uh, There's the old proverb, uh, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Sometimes busy with good things. And so what we see here is that in their zeal to fast, the Pharisees actually missed out on feasting with Jesus, their Savior, and recognizing who it was that was in their midst. Uh, I want to stop for a moment and talk a little bit about fasting and its original intent because it's sort of morphed over the years. And I think when modern Christians think about fasting, we think about abstaining from food to create a physical discomfort to prompt us to pray, right? And that's true and right, and that's part of what fasting is. But in the Old Testament, more often we see fasting associated with repentance. And that'd be an interesting study if you wanted to chase that down yourself. But when we see fasting in the Old Testament, it was a way of creating physical discomfort in one's body 
such that they would resent and loathe and hate their sin. It was a discipline of association, creating discomfort bodily so that they would have a spiritual discomfort for sin. Um, and I think what's, what's interesting here is while this became sort of common practice in Israel's history, uh, it's only actually prescribed uh, in, the, in the Old Testament law once uh, on the day of atonement. When you brought your, your sacrifice and you offered it for your sins, kind of a guilt offering, that was a time where you might fast to create that discomfort for sin as you, as you laid up your offering. But the Pharisees got a hold of this thing. And in the first century world, they encouraged it twice a week. They imposed it upon the people and kind of guilted it upon them. Uh, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about when my wife tried to convert me to meatless Mondays in our house. And I was like, I'm not doing that. You, know, you can make what you want, but I got a bag of bacon bits in the fridge. And I can season that right up the way it's supposed to be. But this sort of heavy-handed, imposing, guilting, taking what was a good thing prescribed once and now saying it ought to be done weekly, not even weekly, twice a week now, created this burdensome kind of religious formalism. And it's against this backdrop where Jesus actually says, come to me, all you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The system of the Pharisees was religious formalism, but Jesus wanted us to hook up to him and he would take our sins from us, and that is better by far. Now, it's important also to notice that Jesus doesn't condemn uh, fasting as a discipline or a personal discipline. You may choose to do that in your life to facilitate prayer or to facilitate real repentance uh, for sin. But it's not a duty or a burden imposed upon us. In fact, he takes this moment and he kind of seizes upon it to show how incompatible fasting was with this particular moment in time in which he was. And he goes further with this uh, to just highlight this, highlight who he is. In other words, his arrival calls for rejoicing and celebration and feasting, not fasting. You notice how this, this feasting uh, or this fasting incident is, is juxtaposed right up against the feasting that he was doing with the tax collectors and the sinners. Mark is making a point by contrast here. Here is Jesus celebrating with those ready to receive him. And here are those who are fasting because they're stuck in their forms and missing the Savior. And so while this is going on, fasting and feasting kind of being the presenting issue, Jesus leverages the moment and he takes it, the opportunity to speak about his identity and to reveal who he is and the significance of his arrival. And he uses um, this kind of word picture or this metaphor. He describes himself as the bridegroom, Right? And I want to say, I, I think this particular illustration is a little bit lost on us or doesn't carry the same weight as it should. Let me explain a little bit for you. Let's start with this question. This is a question you get to answer out loud, by the way. In our present day culture, who or what is the feature of a wedding ceremony? The bride. No variance. Nobody said anything else. Not this service, 
not last service. And if you said something else, you're wrong, right? <laughs> I've done over 30 weddings in my 20 years here. And at every one of those weddings, the bride was the feature of the wedding. And you can just think about some of the things that happen, right? She gets the white dress. The other gals, they get a simple dress. She gets once upon a time, maybe a veil. I don't know if they still do that sort of thing. And the long train and a flower girl and all of the rest. Meanwhile, the groomsmen and the groom himself, ordinary as can be, right? Jerry Seinfeld actually has a joke about this. He says that the reason that the groom and the groomsmen are all dressed alike is so that if anything happens to the groom and he falls down, the next one can just step up. <laughs> Which is why in the ceremony they say, do you take this man? They don't even name, they don't even name him. So that's, that's Jerry's joke, that's not mine. But it, that it teaches here, it teaches. Uh, and the other thing I think it's funny, uh, well, it's not funny, it's kind of sweet, right? The, the parents give away the bride. Nobody gives away the groom, Right? Because the parents have washed their hands of this guy a long time ago. They're like, you're on your own, dude. And uh, I, it's funny, I feel that way about my own kids. I, I had to apologize to them this morning, even as I said this, but it's true. I feel different about my sons than my daughter. For my sons, I'm like, get out of the house. Go get a job. Have a meaningful life. I'll love you when you're independent and active, right? That'll be great. I love them now, of course, but I would love for them to become independent and active. And Eleanor, I'm like, oh, just stay at home and make cookies and let's hang out, you know? That's how I feel. Amen. <laughs> That's a cookie lover over there. That's a cookie lover. But did you know that in a traditional Jewish wedding, it's the groom that's the feature? The groom is the central feature of the wedding, not the bride. And that explains so much when you come to the scriptures. You know, you see Jesus identify himself as the bridegroom and you're like, why are you saying your second fiddle? Because we impose our culture on the text. But when we know the culture and read out of the text, we see, no, he's saying, I'm the main feature and you're missing me. You're off here caught up in your forms. You're supposed to be celebrating. That's how a wedding goes. When we're at a wedding, we're supposed to eat their food and drink their beverage and do the chicken dance and everybody's supposed to have fun. That's a wedding. And Jesus is saying, you're caught in your religious forms and you are missing the celebration. Instead, you're off producing a kind of suffering, caught in your forms of faith, missing out on the substance of your faith and the hope of your eternity, which is a relationship with me. Jesus' arrival here is kind, of like, is kind of like a wedding. It's almost as though he's saying, listen, we've been betrothed for a long time. We've been engaged. This event was gonna happen, and now it's here. Let's celebrate. To make his point extra clear, he uses not just one, but two illustrations, which I think communicates how hard-hearted we are, okay? Two illustrations, verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And so what Jesus is showing here is that the Pharisees are trying to do a little bit of mixture of new and old, and it's just not going to work. Uh, I'm only going to focus on one of his illustrations, the, uh, the patching one, not the wineskins one, because the patching one is one we can really relate to. Uh, this is one of the things that people in Fairbanks actually do. We actually still patch things. And I'll give you an example in case it hasn't come to, well, I'll ask you, 
There's one thing in your house that almost all Fairbanks will patch. What is it? Carhartts? What's wrong with you people? No. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. There's one thing. It's an expensive thing. The, the winter jacket. It's the down coat. Right now, if you look at your coat or the one next to you, almost guaranteed somebody's got a really nice down coat and a little L-shaped tear in it and feathers are coming out, right? <laughs> and we all know what this is like. One day you're walking around and feathers appear. And you think, I'm becoming an angel or something, you know? And you realize, no, my jacket has a hole in it. Nuts. Oh, this was expensive. And now you're going to patch it. Okay, try again here. Ready? Here's the question. What are you going to patch it with? Duct tape. There you go. You got that one right. Good job. Good job. Duct tape. And does it work? The answer is some of the time or for a while. If I were marketing duct tape, that's how I would market it. This can fix anything. For a while. This will hold anything for a while. You could probably hook up a trailer to your truck with duct tape for a while, right? So you do. You put duct tape on your jacket. You patch the hole. And then what happens? A few weeks, a few months later, it dries out. starts to peel off. And it leaves behind goo. Now you got a hole with feathers coming out and goo around it. You've tarred and feathered yourself, basically, is what you've done. There is, however, a real fix for this. You can go to a sporting goods store and you can buy a nice fabric patch with an adhesive back. And you put that on and guess what? That really works because it's like fabric to like fabric. So we actually get what Jesus is talking about here. They are unfortunately stuck on these forms of faith, trying to mix new and old, and it doesn't work. They're trying to keep their rituals and what Jesus is saying, I don't want your rituals. I want a dynamic relationship with you. I don't want your habits. I want your heart. I want the whole of you, all of you. You think that Jesus' point about religious formalism uh, would have been clear enough. Uh, he's already given three illustrations, bridegroom, patches, wineskin. But no, the Pharisees come at him again this time about Sabbath keeping. And I think it just goes to show you something about human nature, and that's this, how resistant we are to grace. We don't like it. It doesn't sit easy with us. I'll give you an example. Just this last week, a couple in the church ran into them in a restaurant. And before I could pay my bill, they'd gotten a hold of the, the waiter and paid my bill. And so upon my leaving, I'm like, oh, it was so kind of you guys. Thank you. But my instinct is to immediately say, I'll get you next time, right? I don't want to be indebted to someone, which means we're so resistant to grace, are we not? Grace, that's uncomfortable. And it was uncomfortable for the Pharisees too. Look how they treat the Sabbath, which was a gift from God. They had turned it into a burden, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going to the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful for priests, for only for priests to eat. And he also gave some, of it, some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
This is really a great teaching moment from Jesus. He knows his audience, Pharisees, law keepers, a little stuck on the law. In fact, tell you what, let's go back to the Old Testament law. Let's cite it and let's show King David. You gonna argue with King David? I think not. How did King David treat the law? He knew it and he exercised the spirit of the law, not some wooden application of it. And from this incident, we get this really beautiful clarifying maxim from Jesus. The Sabbath is made for man not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is meant to be a wonderful blessing, not a wooden burden. Uh, I'm gonna tell you a story here. I've told this before, but it's one of those stories that bears repeating. It's one of my favorites. Um, our family lives up on Yankovic. not telling you where exactly, if you don't know. It's somewhere up there. And uh, so when I'm coming to church or to town or whatever, we come down Yankovic make the right on Belain. We come down and then Belain intersects with Farmer's Loop, right? And there's a light right there. And if you know anything about this light, if you've traveled that one, you know that light does not always turn. Especially in the wintertime when the ground is totally covered and you can't exactly see where the lane is and you sort of come at it and you're like, I think I'm in the right spot, but I could be wrong. And sometimes you'll just sit there and sit there and sit there and it won't turn. It's also bad in the summertime if you're on a motorcycle. Well, this was summertime and there was a fellow on a motorcycle and he was ahead of me and I could tell he was kind of a new rider because you can see a new rider on a motorcycle. He's a little wobbly. And uh, he gets up to the light, not in the best position, and he stops. And the light's not turning and it's not turning, it's not turning. And I can see that he's getting a little antsy and maybe not sure what to do. I pull up behind him and he's kind of feeling the pressure. It's not turning, it's not turning, it's not turning. So then he does this, which made me literally laugh out loud literally laugh out loud. He put his kickstand down and he got off his bike and he walked over to the crosswalk and he pushed the button. <laughs> then he ran back over to his bike and hops on and he's ready to go. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my word. So let me ask you, why do laws exist? Why do traffic laws exist? Why do traffic signals exist? There's one word, safety, right? This is why, safety. This guy, to obey a light, neglected the whole rule of safety, made himself more vulnerable, left his bike as an obstacle, and just missed the whole thing. In other words, in trying to keep the law, he completely neglected it. He neglected the spirit of it. And that is exactly what religious formalism is and does. This is what the Pharisees were doing. Locked onto the forms of faith, didn't recognize Jesus, the substance of faith. They're doing it here with the Sabbath. Sabbath, Shabbat, means a cessation. It means to stop something, to cease doing something. And as we look at the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the first giving of the law, Exodus 20, we see the rationale for the reason it's given. The reason it's giving, it says uh, that God modeled rest. It was something he modeled for us. Uh, one of my favorite sermon titles of all time of my own was Rest is Godly. Because it kind of pokes you in the eye, you know, like, really? Think about this. If you walk up to somebody and you say, hey, how you doing? And they look back at you. Typically, the right answer is tired, worn out. I'm busy, really busy, in demand. If you were to walk up to somebody and say, how you doing? And they, you got back, wow, oh, I'm rested. You'd be really suspicious of that person, right? <laughs> think, what kind of slug are you? You should get to work and be busy and tired like the rest of us. 
But that's not God's intent. His intent was that we would work hard and that we would rest and turn our hearts in dependence upon him. In other words, he didn't want us to constantly work. He wanted us to take time off of work so that our resources were not always seen as of our own hand, but that we would ultimately see everything as from the Lord, that we would trust in him. When we see the passage in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, the rationale for the Sabbath is given, it says, because you were slaves in Egypt. So in other words, God sort of has like two foul ball poles. Number one, I don't want you to be slaves again under the thumb of some oppression. Number two, I don't want you to be completely self-reliant. I want you. I want you to be dependent upon me. We rest so that we would turn our hearts in trust and dependence upon the Lord. So as you can imagine, though, this law of Sabbath is given and immediately people think, well, how are we to do that? How are we to keep the Sabbath? What constitutes work? You know, this sounds like a question that lawyers would kind of start considering. What, what would constitute work in this situation? And so rules were drawn up. Uh, 39 additional rules to quantify what was work. Here's just a couple of them. You couldn't light a fire. I'm glad we're not strict Sabbath keepers in Fairbanks, Alaska, because Sunday fires are some of my favorite things. You couldn't tie a knot because that might be somebody mending their nets, work, self-reliance, right? You couldn't walk beyond a certain distance. There was a Sabbath day's walk. That was still within the rest, but another step, that's work. So there was a limit. And in the end, what was meant to be a gift, a time of rest, a time of drawing near to the Lord had become a burden. We are very resistant to grace, are we not? Chapter three, verse one. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Boy, they're spiritual folk, aren't they? You would think you've seen a, a miracle of healing in your midst. You might go, hey, maybe we should reconsider this Jesus guy, you know, but no, so locked into their wooden forms, their religious formalism, their legalism, they got to get rid of this guy. Little principle we learn about the Sabbath here also that it's worth bearing out is this. The Sabbath is for rest, also for doing good. Also for doing good. That's even in the Levitical law. You can find if a man's ox is in the ditch, you stop on the Sabbath and you help him get his ox out of the ditch. Or in Fairbanks language, if you're on the way to church, and someone's car is in a ditch. You stop and you help them out. I was told that last year um, when everybody was trying to make it to our Easter service, remember that last year? The most memorable Easter ever. <laughs> well, maybe the second most, probably the first one was more memorable, but this was pretty memorable. 
I was told that one particular guy on his way to church helped seven people out of the ditch. Seven people. I thought, man, that's even like a spiritual number. Like, that's really well done, man. Here's what observation I want to make. We must be really hard-hearted because Jesus had to use five illustrations to make his point, right? Bridegroom, patching fabric, wineskins, an example of David from the Old Testament, and now this rhetorical question about whether it's right to do good or do evil on the Sabbath. It is so easy to get caught up in our duties and our habits and our routines and the forms of our faith and completely miss the primary feature of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. So now, again, this is so easy to be critical of and look humorously at as we look backwards. Let's do the harder thing. Let's look at us right now, all of us. And I want to tell you in the outset, I am pretty confident I will offend 80% of the room. And that's, dis- that's disappointing because my goal is 100% of the room. <laughs> what I mean is I want to offend us with the truth of God's word, and I don't want any of us to walk out of here without considering our own practices, okay? So I'm shooting for everybody. If I miss you, I'll try harder next time. Here we go. Forms of faith that we battle with. Let's start with music in the church. Oh, here we go. All right. Once upon a time, we're going to start easy and work our way to hard. Once upon a time, choir robes in the church of Oregon. How many of you grew up in one of those churches with choir robes in the church of Oregon? I did. We had a big organ all across the front. And there was a host of angry people who all sat together because the organ wasn't played and it wasn't played well. So they would just sit together in a silent protest. Church. Oh, yeah, church. How about this one? Hymns. Mmm. Hymns. This is the sanctified music, right? Uh, never, you know, just disregard the point that Ephesians and Colossians both say to sing hymns, psalms, and what? And spiritual songs. We have an array of music. It's also funny to me that people hold up hymns as the sanctified music of the church when guess what? Many of the melodies for hymns, they're old bar tunes. No kidding. There's a whole hymnal called the Olney Hymns, O-L-N-Y, Olney. And it's a combination of John Newton uh, and uh, Cowper, William Cowper. And these hymns, Cowper was sort of the poet and the theologian who wrote the verse, if you will. And Newton supplied the music. And some of the music was supplied from the local taverns because it's what people knew. So they said, let's take rich, beautiful theology and let's put it with whatever they're singing at the pub because the church can do that. These are your sanctified hymns. I love hymns. They're my favorite too. But I, you see what I'm saying? I can't grip these things and saying, this is what's right and everything else is off. All right, that was the easy stuff. Let's work our way to harder. Bible translations. Oh, where could we go there? King James only crowd. Or how about this? Not just King James only, the 1611, right? You got to wiggle your hand when you say that one. <laughs> The 1611 version. It's not the best translation. It doesn't use the most reliable manuscripts. And not only that, but a translation's intent is to be a bridge from the old to the new. It has to touch down in the ancient world, but it's got to touch down in the modern world too. So if you're talking about 1600 language, 
you're kind of missing part of the bridge. Now, I'll tell you this. Some of the verses in the King James Version are so beautifully written, such rich poetry, so well done. It's delightful. Is it the only and the righteous salvation? No, no. I saw a sign in, in, around town here a few years ago. You've heard me say this before too. Uh, King James only, read the version God reads. That's all kinds of stupid. I don't even know where to start with it. That's the, they just walk away from that conversation, right? All right, let's pick on us a little closer to home. How about maybe some, some who are uh, maybe dispensationals or they grew up in that, that particular uh, background. The, the right Bible translation for you then, it was the Schofield Reference Bible, the red covered one, right? That's what it was. Okay, moving along, getting harder, getting harder. Features of a worship service. These forms that we lock on to. Here's one, the doxology. I know this is, this is gonna hurt for some of you because you love that and you wish that we did it. Uh, when we went on sabbatical a couple of years ago, our family went to different churches. Some of them were slightly different trans, uh, traditions. And it was interesting, we'd come to the service, the offering was given and then the pastor would come forward and then there'd be a very sanctimonious, praise God from. And I kept thinking, it sure looks like money is the main feature of this service as the doxology was sung over it. Or how about this? If you're in a Southern Baptist church, it's the altar call. You better have an altar call every Sunday. Every Sunday, there better be an altar call. And we're gonna keep playing that song till somebody comes forward. The next thing you know, the pastor's wife is coming down the middle aisle. She's like, I can't take it anymore. I've heard this sermon all week. I can't do this again. I'll get saved again. Let's do it. <laughs> Here's another one. Uh, the deacon's chair or the bishop's chair. How many of you grew up in a church that had bishop's chairs in it? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Okay. This is, all right. So the church I grew up in, First Baptist of Apple Valley, big upside down cupcake looking church, inside big pipe organ, uh, lofted, uh, uh, what is this called? Where am I right now? Stage, sure, okay. <laughs> but behind it, there would be these four deacons' chairs, very ornate, gaudy, almost looked like a throne kind of chair. And two or four guys would sit in these chairs behind the pastor during the sermon, which I would find really unnerving if there were four people sitting behind me right now. I'm glad our stage isn't big enough for it. And I truthfully don't know why they're there. I don't know if they're sitting there in solidarity with the pastor as if to say, if you rush him, we got you. <laughs> or if it's like, if this guy blows it, we're going to take over. Or if he goes too long, we're, we're going to tap out and say, pastor, sorry, you're done. So I don't know why they're there. All I remember as, as a little precocious kid sitting around where you guys are all sitting right here, that was where our family sat. And I'm looking up at the stage and I can see right up the pant leg of Mr. Van Holsen. And I kept thinking, why, why doesn't he wear longer black socks and cover that up? Why do I have to sit here and look at his legs? And why is he here in the first place? If you have answers to any, well, some of those questions you can't answer, but I don't understand the bishop's chair. So if you know, I'm all ears. I'm all ears. All right, let's move on. Now it's, this is going to hurt a little. That was fun. But now how about programs of the church? Mm, the programs of the church, the things that can become formalism if we're not careful. Uh, how about this? Vacation Bible school. 
Once upon a time, actually, before I got here, this church did away with vacation Bible school. It's kind of relieved. It's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. But what we were finding was we were using up all of our workforce to pull off a one-week vacation Bible school, and everybody was too tired to do Sunday school the rest of the year. So they killed it, and they have the scars to you know, prove that that's what they did, and I didn't have to. So. Or how about this one, the Sunday evening service? Do you remember the Sunday evening service? As a kid, I would think, I haven't even had time to apply what I learned the first service yet. <laughs> We're already going back. I don't understand. And as a pastor, I'm very relieved that we don't have a Sunday evening service because I think that killed off a whole generation of pastors right there with fatigue. Vacation Bible school, right? Uh, not a bad thing. Uh, a couple years ago, I sent my wife off to New Zealand to visit some family members uh, for a couple of weeks. So I had the kids by myself for a couple of weeks just with dad. That's scary time. So I took advantage of a vacation Bible school in here in town. They went over to the Presbyterian church. And the funny thing was, a couple weeks later, I got a note in the mail that said, all of my children had come to know Christ again. And I, I said, what, what is this about? And they said, they just told all of us to go forward. There it is, religious formalism. Okay, here's two more. How about uh, children's Sunday school and Awana? Oh, these have got to be there, right? That's in scripture. Give me the verse. Give me the verse. Give me the verse. They're great forms. They're great things. We use them. Our church is blessed by them, right? But they were innovations created in a moment in time. Sunday school, children's Sunday school, 1780. That's where it started. It was to minister to those people who were illiterate and to use the scripture as a basis for doing so. Awana started in 1950 as an alternative to say Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, right? It's had a good run. It's still running in our church. But if we're not careful, any of these things can become religious forms leading to formalism. I'll even throw in there small groups. Small groups. Do you know who started them? John Wesley. He followed after Whitfield's stump preaching and said, we can't just have people just hear the gospel. When they come to know Christ, we need to disciple them. We need to pull them into small groups. So he created what he called class meetings. They were highly organized training discipleship events. Small groups are great things, but guess what? They too can become a form of the faith that can be something we just simply perpetuate that misses the substance of faith. Any of these things. I'll give you two more. These are new things that, that churches are doing right now creatively. English as a second language, camps, or sports clubs. Great ideas. They're great ideas. It's a new way of trying to reach out and to connect people to the gospel. But even these things, even these things can become formalism if we're not careful, right? So what I want you to hear, don't send me an email about this because none of these things are bad things and I'm not saying that, except maybe the bishop's chairs. Those are bad things. <laughs> but any of these things and much, much more could become to us forms of religious formalism. And the progression goes something like this. Initially, it's the gift of God. Then it becomes the duty of man. Then it becomes the mandate of man. I'm using a provocative word there. Then it becomes the burden of man. Then it becomes a barrier between man and God. Or this is how it feels. Religious formalism will keep you from enjoying Christ 
It will keep you from enjoying life. It will keep you from feeling free. It will keep you from feeling forgiven. It will keep you resistant to grace. It will keep you in a works-based system, which is no salvation at all. Here's how Paul summed it up to the Colossians. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ, the substance of our faith. Now, I think the Lord knew that we would need regular reminders of this, and he left one for us. He left the Lord's Supper that every month or that regularly we would come back to the table and remember it's in Christ that we're saved. It's in Christ that we're saved. It's only in Christ that we are saved. And we do this to remind ourselves of his grace in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, it's easy to look at the Pharisees and go, those knuckleheads just got trapped in Sabbath keeping and these man-made rules and all of these things, and yet, Lord, we know that we're, we're not far from any of them. Our hearts are prone to wander as well. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we would all of us stop and think, is Christ the main thing? Or have I gotten distracted? Am I caught up in the religious forms? Or do I give myself fully to the person of Jesus Christ and delight in him? Lord, do your work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.